0: This year was not going to get any worse or any different. I thought we had hit the craziest part of the year.
1: Apparently not. 2020 has much more in store for us. It's ridiculous.
0: Oh, man, what a week. I mean, I just, I kind of, I, I knew we would had a whole bunch of, uh, we've we had, we've had a couple of years since uh, I've really been thinking a lot about race riots and, and thinking about race relations in America in this poignant of a way. But with uh, with the the attack on George Floyd, the murder of George George Floyd, I should say, that's uh, come right back up to the present present consciousness.
1: Yeah, the, I just I don't even know how to describe. I guess the one word would be outrage. Like the fact that um, that we could see this happening on camera and that we could see it happening so clearly because there was there was actually this thing I believe it was a quote by Will Smith where he said racism isn't getting worse it's just getting filmed and now that we have such a sort of media-centered society we're starting to see these acts of police brutality and racism come to come to light and people are starting to get more exposed to that and it was difficult to watch. It was really difficult
0: to watch that happen. So you did watch the video then? I did watch the video. Yeah, the day it came out. Uh, I, I have not watched the video. I, I just couldn't. I I didn't try. I haven't tracked it down. Um, you you would literally watch a guy being murdered in cold blood. It's
1: terrible. Terrible.
0: Uh, one of the uh, it's 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 yeah. I don't I don't really ha- I don't really know what else to say except how awful it is. Uh, I'm quite glad that uh, the the city of Minneapolis, uh, or the state of Minnesota, whichever one brought charges against the the main officer involved there, uh, I'm glad they were able to move this quickly. Uh, This normally is a months-long process. They brought charges within four days.
1: No, and yeah, the public put a lot of pressure on, too. I know about 308 is the count right now for businesses damaged or destroyed just in Minneapolis alone. And the charges weren't what people expected. The charges. So Minneapolis or sorry, Minnesota is actually one of the states, the few states that divides murder into three categories for charges. Most states do two now. And he was charged with third degree murder. And I'll have a, I took some notes earlier, so I'll pull it up here. Um, so under Minnesota law, third degree murder is defined as causing the death of a person by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for life and without intent to kill. So that's from CNN. And I think they quoted some law, some law document in Minnesota. But the offense carries a sentence of no more than 25 years and a fine that doesn't go above $40,000. So a lot of people have been outraged about the, I guess, the lightness of these charges. But he is being he's being held in a maximum security prison right now in Minnesota. But everything is sort of still up in the air. A lot of people are dissatisfied with that. What do you think?
0: Well, I think um, for starters, I think it's really interesting. I was listening to another podcast where uh, Al Mohler, uh, president of Southern Theological Seminary, was talking about the use of the language "depraved" in that that bit right. there. Uh, it's there's there's something very interesting here, and I, I think part of it is I'm assuming the prosecution was they're looking for what kind of charge will stick all the way through a court process. Because it's one thing to bring a charge that will kind of fit the sensationalism of what people are demanding and and maybe certainly is warranted by the events. But those sorts of charges usually don't stick all the way through or they're overturned on appeal. So I imagine this was a strategic choice to think about, okay, we have a police officer who certainly is not – He's not intending to kill in the same way that someone who pulls out a gun and is shooting someone else is intending to kill. Or if you had clear premeditation uh, intending to murder someone, this is something done in the course of events, in which case it's less premeditated than it could have been.
1: So I imagine that's what's going
0: on there. But I We should get some
1: context for the events, too. George Floyd was arrested or he was he was hindered for writing a bad check because he was, he was attempting to, to write a check to buy something, and he ended up getting his life taken. He actually knew, there's a good chance he knew the police officer, because they both worked similar shifts at, at the same nightclub. So he would, the police officer would work, it would, Chauvin would work as an off-duty police officer for this club, and then Van Floyd was also working. So there's a likelihood that they encountered each other before they may have known each other. But the I think people, so people are outraged at these charges because they seem light. The goal, and I know prosecutors were saying that they were having trouble proving the intent, because intent's a difficult thing to prove. That's like what a lot of murder cases are based around. So, what they're going for is something called depraved indifference, which means that you disregarded the risk and did something that was so dangerous that you knew death could potentially occur. So, it's almost like a negligence sort of thing because you're participating in a, a dangerous action. And in this case, the officer's abusing his authority to to basically kill this guy. And even though there may not have been the intent to kill, which I would beg to differ, I'm sure a lot of people would beg to differ, we, we can't really know what's going on inside his head, he was negligent to the point at which this guy's life was clearly at risk. He was, he was unresponsive for the last two of those eight minutes where that guy's knee was on his neck. So if that doesn't show you that you're being negligent, I don't know what
0: does. Well, especially the, the line I've heard quoted a lot is the, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I mean, that's a. I, I think that's a. That's the kind of language that is stressed in all kinds of first responder training, where you're you're listening for those sorts of comments. Uh, that that that's indicative of something pretty serious. So, the other thing I think is interesting, since we're we're talking about this, we should also mention. Um, there's been several police chiefs nationwide who have come out on record saying that this guy was clear, or the the officer in question. He is clearly acting terribly. Uh, There's not been any attempt to justify or agree with. Like Everyone who's looked at this video has said, clearly this guy is not following proper police procedure.
1: Yeah, he had 18 complaints filed against him too already before this. So people were clearly unhappy with this guy.
0: I'm really curious, and this is the sort of thing, it's one of the reasons I'm glad we at least waited a couple days before we had a podcast conversation about this. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the reasons it takes so long for uh, any sort of justice to be served in these sorts of moments uh, is that there's lots of background details. It takes a while. If there was going to be a formal investigation, you'd have to really dig into this guy's life and figure out the details of what's going on. I'm really curious about the status of the police unions in Minneapolis, and I'm wondering if there is any part of – police unions protecting a union member from any kind of natural consequences to previous complaints filed against this officer. Again, don't know that, but I think it's plausible. Because yeah. 18 complaints, my goodness, that's a lot.
1: Yeah, this stuff is still raw. I mean, this could happen any day from now, any day in the future. And, I mean, protests are still happening. There were, there were protesters at the entrance of my neighborhood just, uh, yeah, just yesterday. My You're mom was telling me when she Bedford? was going to the store. Yeah. Yeah, peaceful protesters, just holding signs. People were honking with them and everything. Um, wow. And in downtown Raleigh, we had more violent sorts of protests that were intended to be peaceful at first. That led, I know uh, CBS got burned down, another building in Fayetteville got burned down, and um, the mayor of, of Raleigh called a state of emergency. So the National Guard came to help us out.
0: Yeah, last night was—I uh, I don't know how many years it's been, but it's—it's it's been decades since Raleigh has had a curfew like they did last night. Yeah, I know. I saw something this morning about New York City hasn't had a curfew since the 1940s, and they did last night. And it's not just yep. here. Uh, one of the things that I find just fascinating about all of this, and it's—it's uh, it's at least taken me aback—is uh, the national response. And the fact that this is not just an East Coast or a West Coast or a Midwest thing. Uh, this has been happening in major cities across the United States. And there's been a variety of, of peaceful protests, but then also peaceful protests that turn violent and that turn towards property destruction. And it's right. been uh, – it becomes kind of tricky to talk about. I've, I've been fascinated by the number of uh, – there's been a lot of uh, social media – I don't want to dignify it by calling it activism, but social media displays a visible support. Let's go with that. I don't it's, even
1: think calling it activism would necessarily be legitimizing something.
0: I, no, I know. But it just – I want to reserve activism for some sort of active participation. Like right. activism – like going and marching, the kinds of protests you're describing in your neighborhood. Like that's a that's – a, in my mind at least, that's more real activism than changing your profile picture on Facebook. Uh, that there, there's something, there needs to be active if we're going to call something activism, but yeah, it's. And I've seen other people who have tried to – there's a sort of – there's a conspiracy narrative about this to try and – I mean one I've seen from more right-wing circles is to say that this is – that George Soros is somehow funding Antifa and there are Antifa members nationwide who are like springing forth out of the woodwork to go from L.A. to D.C. I'm like, look, that's not what's happening here. I mean instead, I think what you've got – uh, I I I there's uh, you don't have to tell me what you think about this. I mean, I've I've at least resisted for for several years the narrative of systemic injustice. Uh, I, I tend to be, as as any regular listeners to our show will probably not be surprised by. Uh, I'm a pretty traditional law and order kind of guy. Uh, it it but it seems to me that we have a huge indication of a noticeable pattern uh, in right. March. There was a similar incident in Kentucky in April. We had the uh, the events of uh, Ahmad Arbery in Atlanta, and now uh, May has brought us to uh, the late May brought brings us to George Floyd in Minneapolis. Across three different states, three different police departments, we have white authoritative violence against civilian Black people. Which seems to me to indicate this is a bigger problem, and we need to figure out not just what the problem is, but what does a positive way forward look like.
1: This is—it's complicated. I mean, we've seen we've seen sorts of things like this happen throughout history too. But one one important thing to note that I thought was a really fair point. I have no idea who made it. It was some posted reposted thing like i i really don't know but one thing i do know is that george floyd's brother called for peaceful protests so and he even in the midst of who the like the one person who should be in the most pain for something like this is still calling for peaceful protest someone made a fair point that that police officer does not represent all police officers just like the most violent protesters don't represent those protesters that are standing up for something that they believe in protesting peacefully i think it's a fair point to make there are plenty of peaceful protesters out there standing up for a good cause and and taking the time out of the day to stand up for what they believe in just like there are good police officers out there that spend every day of their lives you know putting their lives in danger to keep us safe and it's it's important to not let the good get lost in all of this as well but at the same time i i've i'm gonna get completely off the script now i hate reading stuff off of papers i hate you know you've seen me do my final rebuttals like with the rebuttal turned over, like, and I I hate taking notes for these things too, because yeah, we need to know, we need to know the facts around it, but clearly we both want to talk about the systemic injustice issue. So finally going to put the fact sheet away. Okay. <laughs> I've been thinking about the systemic injustice thing too. And the the reason these things get so difficult is, is one, the reason we're wary of it is because we know what consequences are, occur when you when you recognize that this is happening and what implications that has. We had systemic injustice during the French revolution where absolutist rulers were literally wasting all of the money. And well, it led to a revolution. You know more about that than me, obviously, but that's my Western history class. So that's what I've learned about it. Continuing. We had the American revolution where, and of course it's not the same type of injustice, but this is a a higher power oppressing a lower power where again, it was a whole money issue. And now it's, we had, um, I know a lot of people have been talking about, like recently when when this came up as well, how people colonizing certain areas has made it so that this this narrative starts way back with the foundation of America. And then that's where you get the term for marginalized groups, where this country was literally built on the backs of slaves is one thing, where, you know, people talk about Native Americans a lot of being pushed off their land. So this is, and this is something that makes you think about this, this injustice has was sparked a long time ago and we're trying to identify where do the remnants of it lie today and what are the causes of it and what can we do about it? Does change need to happen on a societal level? What does that look like? Does change need to happen on an individual level? Is this a, is this a personal bias sort of thing that everyone needs to figure out for themselves? And finding a solution to something so large and so difficult to pinpoint and, and legally abolish is hard.
0: I think those, are, those all of those are true statements. Um, I want to go back to uh, two things, three things. There, um, first, and I know you want to get back to you want to get off script. I have to make notes so I remember to come back to at least these three things. So okay, I'm gonna that's be fine. a little more scripted, but. Um, when thinking about this, I, I've been thinking about the revolutionary bit, too, uh, and I uh, you're, you're right to a certain extent about the French Revolution, but I would call that just an incomplete picture, um, because where the French Revolution goes, and so far, every major revolution except the American Revolution, and this is where a lot of people will say the American Revolution was not really revolutionary, I'll, I'll circle back to that here in a second, but where the French Revolution goes is you have this mass uprising that is sort of organized at first that does overthrow the status quo. And uh, King Louis Sixteenth is beheaded, there's a new government, and suddenly the people are in charge. Well, what you go through then over, from 1791 through, uh, through 1805 are three different forms of government governed by at least five different constitutions. And in the middle of all of that, from 1795 to 1797, I think, no, it's 1793 to 1795. And if any French history war buffs, want, uh, French history buffs want to write in and correct my dates, please do. I don't have a textbook in front of me. Uh, I'm doing this from memory. So, uh, but in the middle of that, you get a couple of years that are famously called Robespierre's Terror. Uh, did y'all talk about the terror in your history class? Okay. Nope. No. All right. So the terror occurs when you have the government is now, they can kill anyone who is not revolutionary enough. And so what you end up getting are lots and lots of neighbors who rat out their the people they don't like. And suddenly you get this period of time where there's a guy, Robespierre, who is head of a thing called the Committee of Public Safety. Sounds really positive and helpful, right? False. What it actually means is that Robespierre can behead anyone who is not revolutionary enough. And this is where – and it didn't require – the the rules of evidence are thrown out. Uh, Any kind of trial by jury is gone. And it's all done in the name of protecting the French Republic. And there's this constant fear that somehow the monarchist powers of Central Europe and Britain are going to send in spies to overturn the new French Republic – and so we need to beware of any counter-revolutionary people and behead them. So I bring that up as an example because there, there is a uh, – I think there's a great argument to be made that modernity is formed really out of uh, – a huge piece of modern theories of government are born out of the French Revolution and the whole idea that we can change the form of government if we are dissatisfied with it. We can change society. But the French Revolution is not just a positive picture. It's also a negative one because it shows us that revolution eventually devours its, its proponents. The same revolutionaries who are all about the change, they become the next status quo. And if the revolution is unchecked, they're the ones who are then devoured by the next generation of revolutionaries. So revolution becomes this kind of uh, snake-eating-its-own-tail kind of thing if it's unchecked. It's a very dangerous thing, uh, and it's, it's part of why uh, the next piece I wanted to bring up uh, is that this, this whole week – this week I've been thinking a lot about uh, the civil rights movement because it seems to me that what we're looking at are some of the same questions that were raised in the civil rights movement about the proper relationship of white folks in America who have the majority of power and money and African-Americans who have the minority of, of power and money in this country. Well, how should they relate to each other? Well, and the the civil rights movement is fascinating, uh, in part because you have two different guys who view two, bring up two very different pictures of how change ought to happen. Uh, Malcolm X is your revolutionary guy, the founder of the Black Panther movement. Uh, he's a lot of his kind of strategy, I think, is that the is is in part has been is alive today in the Black Lives Matter movement, as much as that can be called a movement. It seems much more organic. There doesn't seem to me to be a central leader. It seems to kind of be sort of a a hashtag and a t-shirt more than it is a definitive movement that is organized with particular policy goals. But Malcolm X wanted immediate change, and he believed that violence was the road to get there. And he he had strong ties to another group called the Nation of Islam, where they were looking for immediate, radical overthrow of the status quo to bring about a more just world. Well... Your counterpart is Martin Luther King Jr., and he is a fascinating figure, Uh, and he brings up this picture of nonviolent protest, and he argued that the only real way to bring about change is that you replace injustice not with another injustice. Uh, He argued that if we get there by violence, we will only have replaced injustice with a new form of injustice. In order to do that, the only way to really bring about change is to provoke the conscience of the majority, such that they see what is wrong in what they're doing and that the suffering of uh, people publicly for the cause should prompt the conscience of the majority power holders to bring about a better world. And so nonviolent protest, Dr. King argued, was the only real way to bring about lasting change. That would Because it actually is involved in changing the hearts of people rather than just spurring increased anger. So all of which brings back around to the whole question of like, okay, I, I still don't know. I don't know how to navigate this one. I'm just posing the question. And I want to toss it back your way. I don't know how we deal with the fact that what we seem to have is a widespread issue. But at the point where it is systemic, if it truly is systemic then it's really hard to figure out what exactly should individual people do. Besides telling individual people, don't be racist. I I, I think that narrative has been trumpeted a lot. Uh, I don't think there's anybody out there who is waiting to be told, don't be racist, being racist is bad and evil and wrong and causes suffering. I don't think anybody's waiting to be told that. So the real question is, like, what do we do? And I, I think ultimately, I would argue what we're dealing with is not a It's not really a systemic problem. It may be a particular individual problem that's happening in a lot of different people, but we're dealing with a heart issue. And in order to change a heart issue, we got to actually deal with people on the level of the heart and on the level of, like, why do certain people view other people as less human? And when we can address that issue on a particular individual level, we'll start to see systemic change over time. What do you make
1: of all that? So I appreciate the historical input because I basically have no, like, no knowledge in the realm of history. But I have very basic, uh, basic knowledge of the realm of history, so I'm trying. Um, but I'm much more of a philosophy and, and ethics sort of person, which gladly that applies here too. Um, so I'm glad you brought that stuff up. Think, thinking about the systemic thing. I mean, I, I was telling and I was talking with my some of my friends about this, too. I completely agree that it's an individual issue, because if you think about it, like the way we're using systemic racism, a system doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have opinions. It doesn't have like it's it's an inanimate. It, it's not a human thing. It doesn't have emotions like that. But of course, it's made up of tons of different people. And then the the you know, when you put all of those opinions together, then you have a system that's leaning one way, leaning the other way, geared towards a certain goal unintentionally or intentionally. And I would, and, um, and it's difficult again to identify which one, but I, I think ideally it would have to happen on an individual level. And I can't see any sort of catalyst that we as individuals or individuals bound together can do to sort of influence that sort of change to provoke the conscience, I guess, like you said, I think Martin Luther King's view was effective in the civil rights movement and it's it's extremely idealistic, but in a good way, as in that's a good response to, to something. And I can't, but then it also makes me extremely skeptical because if this was the solution, if this was the correct solution, solution to everything, we wouldn't have revolutions, but we've had plenty of revolutions throughout history. Like, and I'm not, of course I'm not calling for a revolution here, but I'm trying to consider the nature of a revolution because it, it was even the LD nationals topic last year, like violent revolution as a solution. Um, to systemic or to oppression, something like that. At what point is it justified? And how do you know, it's like, how do you know when to revolt? Cause I was thinking plenty of societies have revolted in the past and, but we're all sitting here like reposting on Instagram and Facebook and, and not like some people aren't doing nothing. There's protesters and there's, and people participating in riots too. But what does it look like for a revolution to happen in the modern age? Cause if you go, way back to to the founding of the country and people putting second amendment rights in place those those rights are put in place to protect against an oppressive government right and and that's how we're supposed to defend our rights against or all of our other rights but at the same time it's like can you even, can you even imagine what a revolution in in today's day and age would look like and i wish i could almost go back and observe people in history and and see what level of thinking they were on or what level of systemic oppression they were able to identify and what they thought they needed to do about it and how you get so many people behind that. Because right now it feels like we're really divided. And like one of the things I see all the time, because again, it's just division, 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 division. Revolution means you need to have people bound together towards a common goal. You're all recognizing the exact same problem and you're going to solve it. I see people, it's just the social media posting. It's like virtue signaling it's like, look how great of a white person I am, because I'm going to repost this, this thing that someone made on Canva with the five free templates. And it's, it's eight steps on how to be a better white person. It's like, maybe, maybe like, but again, again, you're assuming that you know how to solve the problem. And you're going to tell other people the way you think you should solve the problem, or you're going to repost someone else's way of solving the problem for millions of people to see. And you're then you're telling people, this is the worst thing, I think, because this doesn't gear anybody solving the problem is telling someone else that they're a bad person of their race. Like you're a bad X if you don't do Y. You're a bad white person if you don't, you know, read this, if you don't put these into place, if you don't sign this, this or that. It's like, I don't, I don't know how you expect, I don't know how you expect change to occur. If you do that, I don't know how you expect peaceful protesters to be completely behind you when you do something like that. It's like, there's categories of people that care about this like peaceful protesters is the one I would point to that are advocating for something they believe in. They're doing it peacefully and they're doing it respectfully. And they're recognizing the terrible death of, of George Floyd, which I'm completely behind them. And then there's people starting riots. There are people using this as an excuse to bust down a store window and steal a 40 inch TV and take it home. And it's just disgusting. How do you leverage the death of someone to cause that sort of violence for your own selfish gain, just to feel like you're a part of something bigger that you don't even really care about that's terrible
0: it, it really is and also uh, we should take a moment and just point out of all things like why has the flat screen tv been the thing to loot i mean like we bought a flat screen tv i think two years ago three years ago we got like a 54 inch flat screen tv when we moved into this house and i think we paid like 250 or 300 bucks for it like 300 bucks is not worth stealing <laughs>
1: Like I mean, I I was gonna really steal something. It's like the ultimate quarantine discount. People just see this this
0: murder as an opportunity to break down windows and steal flat screen TVs. Let's not dismiss it all, though. Not that not that you were doing that. Um, Let me back up to your thought about revolution because I think this is really key. I think we're getting at some really good stuff here. Part of this has to do with the nature of change, and and really, if we go play the uh, a true debater game and play the rev- the definitions game uh if we part of this has to do with the nature of a revolution and why the american revolution really was not a revolution um so if we can let's let's go back to that for a moment because a revolution the word gets its modern connotation after the scientific revolution and discovering that the understanding of the universe literally stood on its head the earth is not the middle the earth orbits the sun <laughs> Uh, and we're talking about a revolution, we're talking about literally inverting the entire paradigm through which we understand reality. So in terms of governments, a military or political revolution is looking to have a complete rejection of the status quo and replace the government with something completely different. And I would argue that we have had plenty of revolutions in, uh, in, in the, over the last 200 years I don't know of any of them that have turned out well for most people. And by well, I mean your basic ability to act uh, in the economy with the ability to accurately predict what life will be like six months from now so that you can either plant crops, harvest crops, open a business, go to school, do any of those things that people are kind of always doing to somehow make a better life for themselves. Couple of quick examples. Uh, The French Revolution starts in 1789. By 1805, uh, the French Revolution is really over, and dictator for life Napoleon Bonaparte is the unelected ruler, military dictator, first consul of the French Republic. He then declares himself emperor. We've now gone from a hereditary monarchy to a self-appointed military conqueror emperor of France. Well, in which case... Uh, it's not really a true revolution. He also restores the Catholic Church in, to some extent. Uh, he, he creates kind of a new aristocracy by giving uh, lands to his family and his friends. So, uh, but in the middle of that, the French economy is completely destroyed. They ha- also have a few years of famine. Not great. Um, in the 20th century, I would point to the, U- to, uh, the Soviet Revolution in 1917 leading to the, esta- the Bolshevik Revolution leading to the establishment of the Soviet Union that leads to a catastrophic destruction of human life in Russia as the Soviet Union literally kills hundreds of thousands, even millions of their own citizens in the name of perfecting communism. In 1949, with Mao Zedong's revolution in China, you have the exact same story where now you have the establishment of the People's Republic of China leading to mass starvation with the the attempt to develop a perfect society. You get the same thing in revolutionary countries in the Caribbean and in Latin America – or in South America. I'll point to Cuba and Venezuela as examples of failed revolutions – Uh, Both of those are they're attempting to have a revolution replace what was there with something brand new. Now, I I think that's what our I don't know that anybody has yet interviewed the rioters and asked them, what are you actually looking for? Uh, If so, I haven't seen that article yet. Maybe it'll be out tomorrow. I don't know. Uh, But I think our rioters are really acting as if they want a revolution, to overthrow the Constitution, overthrow the U.S. government, put in something that they haven't quite articulated yet, but that's somehow going to be moving towards racial justice and racial equality. And it won't work. It doesn't work that way. You don't actually get... It doesn't get better when you completely overturn the status quo. What I think is a much more positive picture of change is what your protesters, who are not violent... Uh, rioters, your peaceful protesters, like the people you mentioned in your neighborhood, they're trying to say, this is a problem, we should fix this. They're not looking to completely overthrow everything, they want change from within the system. And I would argue the American Revolution is actually changed from within the system. You do have a changeover of government, but in practical reality, the American colonies had been governing themselves and they go right on governing themselves. <laughs> after with the established under a constitution but at the state level almost nothing changes in a legal sense they're still following english common law they tweak it a little bit but that's part of why in the uh, in the anglophone sphere or in the the countries that all speak english they tend to really still have governments that look a lot like each other because they're still basically following english governmental practices even though they're doing it independently now so all that to say I think what we're looking at are two different groups of people who are both looking for change, but in radically different ways. We have people who are peacefully protesting, and, and I think you and I have both expressed a, a, an alignment with the folks who are saying, we do not need to have white police officers causing fear in black people. That's not okay. That needs to change, that needs to stop. We might need some new training, we might need some new policies, uh, we might even need to evaluate how police work is done in general. All of those would be changes within the status quo that might, look, might create some totally different scenarios, but we're not. neither of us seem to be calling for somehow rejecting the existence of America.
1: I just don't know what we would change in, like, I don't know what we would change in the system to solve the problem. Cause you could put different police training, like you can put, cause, cause policies are put in place to solve specific problems. Like, and I don't know, for some reason that just reminded me of when Dr. Church was teaching me in our STEM class where there was an objective and then there was a specific means to get to the end of the objective. And then you would know if you achieved it based on how the project turned out. But here there there is no defined objective. The objective is to fight ideological racism. So you're fighting against an idea and you're, you're the path to get there. Like, how do you weed out, how do you suffocate an idea within a system where you can't even identify where it is because it's on an individual basis? And I'm not, I'm, but I'm also not going to, I'm going to try to not be too skeptical of our ability to systematically fight this because I'm standing with the protesters here. I think there are changes that could be made who knows what they are, everyone's got different opinions on that, that could help solve the problem, maybe looking for signs of racism and trying to find a way to measure that to the point where you would be able to discharge someone from the police force if they exhibited too many bad signs, if there is a certain number of complaints, like 18, maybe, I don't know, like, <laughs> it, there's <it's, laughs> that should have been a red flag. I'm just gonna put that out there. But I don't know what the average is, but that still should be a red flag. But, yeah, it's, it's a difficult problem to deal with. There's a lot of different ways we could go about it, and I think we should just keep trying things and keep trying to, again, like you said, this is a, this is a very personal and, and heart issue at the center of it because if it's an idea, it's an idea that people hold, and it's, it's a bias thing. It's definitely an individual thing that needs to change.
0: Well, I think um, that's probably a, a good spot to mention two last things, and we should maybe begin wrapping this particular episode up. Um, first thing I'll say in response to that is that I think one thing we can do – Uh, And at least this has been my experience with this particular question, is that for white conservatives in particular, which is exactly where I would identify myself, I am a a white guy who... uh, so far is not registered Republican, but has voted towards the right, even though I'm usually grumpy when I go to vote because I don't like any of my options. Uh, uh but I was, I grew up, I was born in Alabama. I grew up in Tennessee and Virginia. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm rather Southern in my, my sympathies. Uh, I, I think part of this may just be, uh, may, might begin with recognizing, and this just, I suspect this is a difference between you and I, Ethan. um, I, I, it took me quite a while to recognize that there was a problem. Uh, and it it took a – a couple years back I took a class with an African-American theology professor, a guy named Walter Strickland. He's now finished his PhD, so he's Dr. Walter Strickland. And he told me his story, and that just – it kind of rocked me. And his story convinced me, and, and I realize many of our listeners might be appalled that there are people who need to be convinced of this – uh, but that so is I was thinking, yeah that that would be at, that yeah. is true that there are people who don't believe that there are different experiences here. I think part of moving towards a place where we can see solutions is recognizing that there are very different experiences, and we approach people approach the police from a very different angles, particularly. So in this case, you've got a uh, a white experience that is I do think is profoundly different from a black experience when it comes to the police. And the way Walter kind of at least opened my eyes to this was talking about it was uh, this was back in 2017. So we were just past Ferguson and I think two other uh, moments of police shootings of white people. And Walter had come to my church and he had uh, he told this story as the beginning of a seminar that he did at our church. So I I don't think I'm I'm not violating any confidences to tell this story on, on the air, I don't think. Uh, He had arrived at our church about an hour before the the conference seminar was going to begin, and he was there. There was no one there, and he was sitting there alone in the parking lot, and he was suddenly just terrified that if a police officer rolled through the parking lot, the police officer might suspect him as an alone African-American man of loitering and possibly being about to break into the church, and that he could be shot. And so he immediately got back in his car and tried to go to a public place where there would at least be a lot more people around him. And now a police officer did not drive by, a pastor rolled up and it was all fine, unlocked the building, it was fine. But I was kind of struck by the fact that I have been stopped by police, I think three times, every time because I was speeding. One time, because I was 16, and I was, my license only allowed me to have one passenger, but I was cool, so I had three passengers in my car. Well, and in, every, and in every case, I either got a ticket or a warning, but I had no fear or terror of the police officer in that situation. But since Walter told me that story, I have heard an identical story from two other African American friends. Which tells me that they experience interacting with the police in a profoundly different way than I do. Not to say that I, that, I, that and that I heard that just the other day I saw the, the best definition I've ever seen of white privilege was simply that if you are white, you do not interact with authority in the same way that a black person does. And that that is itself a privilege. I was like, okay, I can see that that I simply don't walk around with those same, uh, those, those hesitancies with fear and legitimate hesitancies and apparently legitimate fear that this might happen. And so I think recognizing that and at least recognizing that uh, maybe we do experience things differently and we need to then figure out how can we have, how can we move towards a common experience where are under rule of law, that that would be a movement towards a positive, uh, that would be a beginning point, I think. What do you make of all that?
1: I think I that's sort of been in the back of my mind and I didn't know like if we would bring it up or not but I want to recognize like there's there's legitimacy to people being geared towards what they've learned their entire lives. You lived in like the south, right? And you and you again gave us a whole an account of your experience. I don't think there's blame to be placed on anyone who has an experience common to yours for being skeptical of things like this, and you and again, you you pointed out like people listening might be like, "What the heck? Like, how could you be skeptical that racism exists on a systemic level?" It's like people's upbringing really does change their perspective on things. It's really not that easy to identify for someone who probably wasn't exposed to something like that for you know decades or, or several several years of their life. And this is what is so important about peaceful protests is that this, this is raising awareness. And at first you may raise eyebrows at peaceful protest If this is your background and you're like, yeah, okay. But eventually when you start seeing these patterns occur and you start looking into the issue more and, and you're seeing patterns, maybe, a, you know, prison rates, recidivism rates, um, and, and people, again, with, even with your friends on a personal level, with their common experiences with the police and saying something's off here, like the, the experience is clearly different. That is, is a valid mechanism for change, I think. And for people who don't necessarily recognize these issues at first can can learn from these people protesting, raising awareness. They can learn from their friends. They can learn from uh, any of these sorts of experiences. And, and I guess we're just getting... You could, you could chalk it up to, we're just getting closer to the truth of the way that the world is by learning from other people's voices and other people's experiences. But that's, and that's not to place any blame on anybody for the way they were raised or the way their background is. It's just that we're all we're all helping each other realize what the truth is and how we're going to get the problem solved. So, and I think that we need to have open minds and we need to be able to, to debate, I guess, these things because we're debaters. We need to be able to think about these things from a critical perspective, not criticizing, but as in critical thinking. And try to discover what 's true about it, and through that we all gain a better understanding of the situation and hopefully some better solutions so i 'm glad that you shared that
0: well that 's probably a perfect segue to uh, introduce the uh, whole idea of our summer series of episodes uh, last summer for any long term listeners it 's hard to think that we have enough, we may have listeners who've been with us for eighteen months now, which is kind of crazy. We've been around that long, but um, last summer we did episodes that were sort of hodgepodge, hit or miss. It was like random people that I met. I was like, oh, I want to interview you. You seem like an interesting person. Yeah. Let's do an episode together. Uh, they, they weren't really themed. Um, this issue about uh, racial relations in America seems to have now come up enough times over recent years and be complex enough that – I think we would be well served to bring in some expert opinions and converse with people who have spent a lot of time thinking about these issues. So to that end, uh, I've reached out to a series of friends, uh, all of whom have some sort of expertise in this area. Uh, Some are ethicists, some are theologians, some are philosophy-inclined people. Uh, Some are debate-oriented folks who are thinking about what does the debate community have to offer the world in terms of a way to research these issues and express these issues through competitive speech and debate. And over the next few months, uh, so it's current, we're recording this on June 2nd. So between uh, June 2nd and uh, really through August is when we should, by the time we get to August 1st, we should have the September resolutions out. But across June, July, and into August, we hope to do a series of episodes that are all oriented around uh, three main ideas. Uh, The first being race riots, second being rule of law, and the third one being prison reform. Uh, because that not only is a good debate tie-in, I think, because that's uh, part of the 2020-2021 policy resolution about the fact that the U.S. federal government ought, should uh, have some prison reform. Uh, all of this seems to be related in a way, because I think these riots and protests have, for them to be effective, they have to have some way of recognize of reckoning with the rule of law. Either that the rule of law has been so corrupted we need to overthrow it, or that In order to make effective change, we somehow need to protest in a way that respects rule of law, but also behind all of this is a system that uh, at least the literature I've read seems to all agree, no one has a good explanation for the racial disparities in our prison system. And I I was listening to another podcast uh, last week where there's a journalist in Alabama who has spent her career dealing with the Alabama uh, prison system and researching it, she told this story that I, just blew me away. It was a man who robbed a gas station when he was 18 or 19, just across that legal line to for legal adulthood. He stole $9 worth of goods. And in according to Alabama state law, that was a felony, and so every felony conviction results in life without parole. Dude has been what? in prison for fifty-five years for stealing nine dollars worth of stuff. You're kidding! I'm not making this up. I don't think I'm exaggerating either. If I'm, if I can't I am, even I'm, wrap my accidental. mind around that. I mean, like, we're talking about. So wrapped up in all of this, like I think the part of what too is happening, there's some sort of residual anger at an unjust system. So this is more complicated, I think, Ethan, than you and I can really grapple with. We need to reach out to some experts and bring them on the show and get their insight into this.
1: Here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring experts on the show. We're going to think to the best of our ability. We're going to gather all the facts that we can and because clearly there's a problem here and clearly it's going to take more than our generation to solve. Hopefully, hopefully it will be solved, but I mean, it's an ideological issue, so you'll always have groups that fall in there. There's a problem. We're going to talk about it. We're going to find people who know about it. We're going to have open minds, and we're going to do the best we can to solve it, and that's what we can do.
0: Wow. Well. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, now, we kind of skipped our intro. Uh, hopefully you know what show you're listening to if you made it all the way to the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we kind of forgot to do that. This is the first episode where we've not done that intro. So that means
1: that, that's fine. We're good. Yeah. That, that's
0: fun. That's good. Well, uh, just in case you have questions or comments for us about this episode, or uh, if you have some level of expertise on this issue and want to reach out to us and volunteer to come on the show, uh, we, we'd love to hear from you. Ethan, how can people get in touch with us if they want to let us know anything about this show?
1: If you want to get in touch with us you can do so uh at whatstheres at gmail.com that's w-h-a-t-s-t-h-e-r-e-s at gmail.com you can go to our website www.whatstheres.com we have all of our contact information there and we post all of our episodes there on a daily basis and we also have um we have an instagram twitter and reddit account that's at whatstheres underscore where you can reach out to us as well and until next time work hard speak well and seek the truth